0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental well-being, and encourage community. Today, I am privileged to have as our guest Dr. Bruce Lipton. Dr. Lipton's credentials are, are so voluminous that were I to read them, there would be no time for the interview. Suffice to say that he has a PhD, he's a cellular biologist, his PhD is from the University of Virginia, by the way. He then went on to teach anatomy at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. He did research on muscular dystrophy, studies employing cloned human stem cells, going back to 1967, by the way, he was already cloning cells back then. He focused on the molecular mechanisms controlling cell behavior. An experimental tissue transplant technique developed by Dr. Lipton and a colleague, Dr. Ed Schultz, was published in Science, and it was employed as a novel form of human genetic engineering. Way back in 1982, he was examining the principles of quantum physics and how they might be integrated to his understanding of cell information processing systems. He went on to teach and do research at Stanford University School of Medicine, uh, did research showing that the environment operating through the membrane controlled the behavior and physiology of the cell, turning genes on and off. As I said, I could go on and on. One other thing I want to mention is that out of his research came the new science science, of epigenetics, which we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be learning about what epigenetics really is. One of his books we're going to be talking about today is The Biology of Belief. You're going to want to Google Bruce H. Lipton, Dr. Bruce Lipton. You want to listen to and watch his YouTube video, The Power of Consciousness. Fabulous YouTube. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Bruce.
1: Richard, thank you so very much. And Uh, In addition to thanking you, I really appreciate all the listeners out there because uh, all of us are involved in this very momentous evolutionary event we're experiencing, and and we're all participants, and and that's what's going to make evolution happen. It's a a participatory evolution we face.
0: Typically, I start the program with uh, eight or ten minutes of news and notes in psychology and medicine. We're going to bypass that today for the most part because I want to give you every minute possible. I am going to read one or two articles because they relate to what you're going to be talking about. Number one drug amongst prescription drugs used by U.S. adults, the first ranking drug, antidepressants antidepressants are the most common prescription medication for Americans age 18 to 44 and the third most common drug across all ages. 60% is the percentage of Americans taking antidepressant medication who have used it for two years or longer. And 14% have taken the medication for 10 years or more. 23 the percentage of women in their 40s and 50s who have been prescribed antidepressants. 23% of all women in their age age group, 40s and 50s, have been prescribed antidepressants. How about that? Overall, 11% of Americans over 12 presently take antidepressants. Interesting numbers. Okay, one more article. This isn't really an article, it's actually a commentary. It's about Darwin and Lamarck. All of you are familiar with Darwin. Some of you may remember Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, 1744 to 1829. Darwin, as you know, believed that evolution works over millennia, thousands of years it takes. For example, for giraffes to get their long necks because, according to Darwin, the genes for long necks had very slowly gained advantage. However, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck argued that evolution could occur within a generation or two. He said that animals acquired their taste during their lifetimes, their traits, rather, during their lifetimes because of the environment. Lamarck said that Giraffes acquired their long necks because recent ancestors had stretched to high nutrient-rich leaves. Two different theories, right? One, taking over Darwin over a long time, genes changing. Lamarck saying the environment creates an almost immediate effect. Lamarck went out of vogue. The world accepted Darwinianism. Along now comes Bruce Lipton. What are your thoughts on that argument, Bruce?
1: Well, it's a good time for people to start learning the name Lamarck again, because (laughs) uh, after all this time, it turns out that his understanding uh, is an understanding that is most important at this time. Matter of fact, very interesting. uh, Darwin uh, was uh, talking about both of them talk about evolution. Number one, so they both agree on evolution. Matter of fact, just for most people don't know this the first scientific theory of evolution, meaning a written article about how and why uh, of evolution was Lamarck, and he published it 50 years before Darwin published his theory. So uh, rightfully, Lamarck is the founder of the theory of evolution. But when people talk about evolution, sometimes apples and oranges uh, discussion, meaning there's two parts to the question of evolution. A, did evolution happen? And B, what mechanism uh, was behind that evolution, so let's do part A first. Did evolution happen? Yep, Lamarck got that fifty years before Darwin. But in the response part about B, how did it happen? Uh, there was profoundly different because Lamarck's theory was talking about um, uh, uh, an instructive interaction between an organism and the environment in which it lives, so that organisms and environment are are, are in lockstep associations, for example yeah you don't find uh... polar bears in the caribbean and you don't find orchids up in in the arctic uh... organisms and their environments are are matched and uh... that was his understanding is that an organism would adjust its biology in an environment to fit the environment Darwin's theory on. Uh, part L- Let me.
0: I want to interrupt yep. you there because you said you, you you have so much information that you're used to, and I want to underline something that you just Please said that's do. critical. I you get said, carried away. <laughs> okay, well that's wonderful. You said that an organism adjusts its biology to its environment. That was a critical comment you made.
1: Oh, that's the most fun. That is the. the see, uh, the difference is. Well, uh, Lamarck was talking about an active interaction, organism and environment. Darwin's theory proposed that evolution is a result of two steps. The first one is called a random mutation, meaning uh, a cell divides and in copying the DNA introduces an error, which then changes the trait of that organism, and uh, if the... trait is changed in a positive way, then the second part of Darwinian theory, first part random mutation, second part is called natural selection, nature will select the strongest of those random mutation events to be propagated throughout history. And, and, and if the mutation causes a weakening, uh, then nature will select against that. The difference between the two is one is instructive and the other is an accidental beginning. (laughs) Uh, Darwin's
0: talking about random events happening all over the place, and the ones that are strongest are the ones that succeed.
1: Uh, absolutely. If you yeah. have a mutation that, that gives you an advantage, then that mutation will be propagated uh, because it, it enhanced or increased your, your survivability. And so, the
0: giraffes will get very long necks over thousands of years.
1: Yeah, that, that's the, the basic theory is that this was all just an accident. How lucky the giraffe is, you know, when, the, when there was no food uh, at the lower level, the lucky giraffe was the survivor, and that's why mutations would have encouraged that.
0: The one that happened to have the long neck was the survivor, and those genes got carried forward yes okay
1: and and so what what's the difference is this one of them is um, the Lamarck theory says that every organism that is in the environment is fitting into that environment and is adjusting its genetics to be a complement to to work in that environment. Uh, Darwin's theory is totally accidental. Wow, what a coincidence This mutation occurred and this organism was able to to advance at some point point. Uh, and so uh, it was very interesting because. Lamarck back in eighteen twenty. In eighteen twenty 1820. In 1820, he wrote or actually eighteen oh nine, excuse me, um, Lamarck wrote this very uh, important understanding that we've sorta of lost, but it's coming back to us and he said because of the nature of the relationship of an organism and the environment, he said that the problems that humanity will face is that they will distance themselves from nature. And as a result, experience uh, the the problems that we are facing now. He said that in 1809, because he saw that uh, th- there's an important relationship with nature. Our failing to understand that theory, our, our support of a Darwinian theory that we're just here by accident, uh, leads us to sort of disconnect from the environment. Uh, that uh, you know, whoa, what a lucky break we're here. We can do whatever we want. We got here by accident, but we might as well enjoy it. Uh, And and in that process of not recognizing our relationship to the environment, uh, an interesting situation has arisen today, and that is we've undermined the environment and the habitats on this planet so much that uh, we are facing what scientists call the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. Uh, and it's being driven by human behavior. We're, we're destroying the environment underneath our feet. And, and, and like Lamarck said, uh, we are connected to this environment. So by destroying the environment, this is why we find ourselves in such a serious situation today in regard to uh, uh, climate change, uh, in regard to um, the loss of species, which are, are accelerating at a rate uh, not seen before, uh, and that we are involved with that.
0: Okay, let's fast forward now from the 18th century of Lamarck to the 20th century of Bruce Lipton and tell us what happened in your personal life that connected with this discussion between Darwin and Lamarck and how you came to a greater understanding of the effect of the environment on actually on genes.
1: Well, the the big surprise for me was I was, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, cloning stem cells back in 1967. Uh, uh, Just for people to get an understanding, stem cells are actually embryonic cells. Uh, I can't call them embryonic cells uh, when a person is born because you're not an embryo anymore. So uh, the minute before you're born, if I looked at one of these so-called stem cells in a in tissue section, i say, oh, that's an embryonic cell. And then a minute after you're born, I look at the same cell, and I go, oh, that's called a stem cell. Uh, so people understand <clears throat> that stem cells are, are embryonic cells. Uh, why do we have to have them? Uh, very important for a simple reason. Uh, our bodies are made out of about 50 trillion cells, but every day we lose hundreds of billions of our cells just to normal aging or trauma uh... and so every, if you're losing hundreds of billions of cells every day uh, there's a simple reality if you can't replace those cells you don't have many days left on this planet before you run out of cells so how do we stay alive in the interest uh, throughout everybody uh... uh... after a person is born everybody has uh... these stem cells scattered throughout the body and their job is to divide and replace uh, cells that are
0: lost. To replace some of these hundreds of billions, billions of Hundreds of, of cells. billions.
1: Yeah, here's a surprising thing. Uh, the entire digestive tract lining, meaning from your mouth down to your anus, uh, which is feet and feet and feet of tubing, the lining of that tubing is replaced every three days. And that's like a trillion cells. It's like, well, where are you getting these cells from? And the answer is... The, the, the reserve cells, the stem cells, which are embryonic cells.
0: My mind is buzzing. I don't want to take us off on a sidetrack, but I'm thinking if, 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 if the entire lining is replaced every three days, how come we still have things like ulcerative colitis and various kinds of indigestion? One would think we'd get rid of all the junk and put in new stuff, and we'd feel great.
1: Absolutely would be true if it wasn't for the fact that whatever the chronic cause was behind it, uh, people don't change the, the way they're living. And, and if they're not living in harmony with the world at this point, uh, uh, cells reflect the, the, the environment of that individual. Here's a simple thing. I put cells in a petri dish, uh, and, I, and I take them from a good environment, which, uh, which I normally grow them in. Just move the dish into a, uh, a less than optimum environment. And what will happen is the cells will start to get sick, and they'll start to die. Uh, most people say, "Oh my goodness, your cells are sick. What kind of medicine are you going to give them?" And then the, the the joke part is, "No, I don't give them any medicine at all. All you have to do is take the dish from the that less-than-optimum environment, put it back in the good environment. Guess what? Instantaneously, the cells get well. There's a very simple point: the health of a cell is a reflection of the environment. Uh, and this is a very profound difference between the old biology and the new biology for a simple reason. If we have a chronic issue, like you said, colitis and things like that, uh, in our conventional view, we say, oh, the body is, a, is this physical vehicle, and when it breaks, there's something wrong with the vehicle, so we want to fix its chemistry, we want to fix its genes, uh, and, and we blame the vehicle for the problem. The new biology, which is really based on epigenetics, is a biology that reveals that the fate of a cell is a direct complement to the environment that it's in. So if you're not healthy... Rather than blaming the vehicle, you have to look at your relationship and how you're responding to the environment, because uh, this is what has to be changed, not the body. And this is why medicine has a lot of trouble with chronic diseases, because they keep insisting that the body is defective, not recognizing, no, the, the, the cells in that body, like in a petri dish, uh, or if they're in a bad environment, the cells are going to get sick.
0: The and, health of a cell is a reflection of the environment.
1: Absolutely, and this is a Lamarckian kind of vision, because it reveals that... that uh, the environment uh, is directly influencing the readout of all these genes.
0: So a human organism, you and me, are, we're a composite of these trillions of cells. Yes. So the health of each of us individually, you're saying, is a reflection of the environment that each of us lives in.
1: Uh, absolutely. I'm not gonna, let's get this point clear. So <clears throat> there'll be people out there that'll be up in arms, and I'll have to say that about 5% of the population uh, arrived on this planet with some defect in their genes, uh, which will interfere with them having a healthy, uh, uh, happy, harmonious life. Five percent—they're called birth defects. Ninety-five percent of the people on this planet were born with a completely adequate set of genes to have a healthy, happy life. And, and the issue is: okay, well, that five percent—we're going to talk about them at a separate time. The ones that arrive here with birth defects, because we can do something about them. It's the 95% of the people that arrived here with a great set of genes that end up getting, when they get sick, we can't go back and then blame the genetics and the physical body for that. We have to look at it's something that that individual is doing in their life experiences that is not in harmony with their biology. So it changes the source of the problem. 5% source of the problem, genetics, biochemistry, we got that. It's the 95% of the population we run and talk about, because they shouldn't, by definition, have any difficulty with their life experiences. If they do, rather than blaming the genes, they got here with good genes. We have to look at what other source it could be, and, and this is turning out to be uh, how we respond to the environment. And if we respond with harmony, the cells will stay healthy, uh, and if the environment is not really good, the cells will reflect that in their expression. So... Uh, it, it's really interesting. Here, here's a, uh, you know, an interesting uh, story like uh, the canary in the mine. When the miners go down there, they put the canary in there. If the canary dies, that means there's methane gas. You've got to get out of there. So right. It's a marker. Uh, uh, interesting, veterinarians will tell you that uh, animals, uh, especially dogs, um, they're like the canary in the mine for their owner for this regard. When dogs get sick, veterinarians uh, uh, almost always know that the illness is expressed by the pet uh is a reflection of the illness of the owner uh and that's because the the pet and the and the owner uh become energetically entangled with one another very specifically and so uh the vibration of the uh of the owner the 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 physiology of the owner uh is actually a vibration that is picked up and 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 alters the dog so uh uh very interesting it just says that you can reflect on, on, on your health by even just looking at your pets. Fascinating
0: uh, so, implications because that means that all those who are giving their dogs antidepressant medication ought to really be <laughs> thanking the dog for showing them that they themselves are in an environment which is depressing.
1: That, this, is, uh, this, for me, is the most exciting point that people are paying attention to, and that is exactly what you said, is that uh, th- it's almost a mirror of the owner's health. Uh, uh, and so the, the the dogs like that canary, and, and, and what it really represents is the issues that we face are not necessarily organic at all, nothing to do with that. As a matter of fact, fact, ninety percent of cardiovascular disease has nothing to do with the physiology of the body. It's a consequence of the way the person is living, uh, uh, and the same now is true for um, cancer, where ten percent of cancer has a hereditary genetic linkage. 90% of cancer is directly the consequence of lifestyle. Uh, and diabetes is, is almost all lifestyle. Uh, and so we have to transition from the fact, oh, I'm a victim of my heredity and my genetics that's running in my family uh, and it's my physiology that's off and recognize, no, it's the way you're living your life that's off.
0: And, and are you D- Bruce? Are you implying here that if that 90% of cancer is is environmental, you're also saying that billions of cells are uh, change and uh, regrow every single day? Does that mean that a person who are you implying here that a person who has cancer who changes the environment and the, the impact of the environment on them has an opportunity because the cells are regrowing to actually turn the cancer around?
1: Absolutely. And this is, this is so exciting because the conventional thing that I was teaching back in medical school when I was doing my stem cell research, the stuff that's in the, the textbooks, even now the young kids are still getting the same story, is your genes determine... Your, your biology, your behavior, your emotions. So, so we, we, we say, oh, my goodness, these genes are running in my family. Uh, there's cancer in my family, diabetes. It's like, oh, my goodness, I, I'm going to be a, a, a recipient of these genes, and I'm going to have to face this kind of thing in my own life. We've been programmed to believe that. And it turns out it, this is not true. Here's an interesting, just think about this one because it's so cool. They've been studying the fate of children adopted into families where there's cancer, a lineage of cancer in the family. What did they find is they found that the adopted child will get the same family cancer with the same propensity as any of the natural genetic siblings. But then you have to recognize this. The adopted child is completely different genetics. So how did they, they, they get the cancer? The family had the answer is because we've been looking for the genes that's the cause of cancer, which has not been found at all. Uh, we're now recognizing cancer is a reflection uh, of um, uh, the way we're living, uh, the way that we're not dealing with life appropriately. Uh, usually it has a lot to do with anger and, and stresses uh, on the system, and that uh, anger and stress, when put into the cell, will reflect, uh, be reflected in a, in a very unhealthy cell. There's a whole difference here between the new biology and old biology. Old biology, genes control your fate. Uh, you've got the genes at the moment of conception. Uh, some from your mother, some from your father. You put these things together, and then this is sort of like a program of your life that will unfold, and everybody goes, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a victim of my heredity. Yes, it's a
0: kind of fatalistic determinism. It's that, all laid out in the big book. Absolutely.
1: And now what it turns out to be is, it, very infrequently, as I said, a small percentage related to genetics, most of it is uh, living a life that is not in harmony with the biology, uh, here's a professor. So is what, is what yeah, you,
0: let me just clarify, is what yes. you're saying here that, that the environment impacts the cell, in this case we, humans, a whole c- a conglomerate of cells that that environment, when it impacts us affects our chemistry, which then affects our biology.
1: Exactly. Here's a, a a recent study that, if, if you know, we're getting right down to what, what's the nitty gritty here. Uh, there's a, a wonderful physician researcher in San Francisco, Dean Ornish, who does a lot of work with cardiovascular. Yeah, disease. I know Dean. Sure. Okay. Well, he did uh, a recent study uh, working with prostate cancer patients. He took the the patients. There were two groups of patients. One group just got the conventional treatment with the medication, chemotherapy, whatever those things are. The second group, he only worked with them for 90 days. Think about it, 90 days. And what did he do? In 90 days, what he did was he changed their diet, gave them a much healthier diet. He gave them uh, stress reduction techniques that they practiced every day, and he taught them meditation. That's all. Changed the diet, stress reduction techniques, and meditation. And in 90 days, 500 genes changed their function. Most of the genes, the changes, were changes that enhanced the health of the biology, and, uh, and many of the gene changes were actually shutting off the genes that were associated with the cancer.
0: How are, the ch- how are these changes in 500 genes measured so that you could get that kind of number? With such well, what, what
1: you do is you do, the, like, genetic chip readings. You know, that's the new biology, which I—please, people, don't do it. <laughs> but uh, genetic, genetic chips— uh, where you can read the activity of the different genes as part of a result of a human genome project stuff, uh, and th- so i I take a a, a reading of the genes uh, before the ninety day process and then I get okay this is this is the activity these are the genes uh, that are expressed and then ninety days later after the period of changing lifestyle right re- redo the gene test again and then you'll look and you'll see that five hundred of these genes that you were measuring have completely changed their function. Some turning on uh genes that weren't on before and and the majority of them are actually turning off genes uh that were on and, and were related to the cancer. So basically, it says that uh, uh, you, ch- you change 500 genes in 90 days just by changing lifestyle.
0: Now, do we know anything about the, what happened then with regard to this, the prostatic cancer that these folks had?
1: Well, as far as I know, that uh, almost all these symptoms were starting to be reduced. Now it was up to the patient. I don't know what the follow up is and yeah. how, many he changed, how many stayed that way. This, this is a very similar story about diabetes. There's, there's a website. Uh, uh, raw for 30 days, where the number it's three zero. Raw for three zero days, uh, and what did they, they did this wonderful study. What they did is they, they took insulin dependent diabetics, people who require insulin every day, diabetics treated by medical people, and they said for 30 days we take you out of your environment, we put you at this uh, retreat center, we feed you uh, raw food. Uh, and, there, uh, and these people signed up for this, <clears throat> not realizing that after about 10 days they were climbing the wall because it, it was almost like a, a detox in the sense that after eating like McDonald's and things like that and all of a sudden going to this food, uh, it, it really irritated the hell out of them. But by two weeks and, and three weeks, uh, what happened is their biology changed, accommodated the new diet. And guess what? All of these people in the process uh, uh, were no longer insulin-dependent diabetics in 30 days. All they did was take them out of their environment, feed them this healthy, you know, healthy this diet. Uh, and then now the most important question is you just said, what about the follow-up? And here's what's interesting. They all were insulin-free, uh, you know, independent, independent of insulin and all that stuff. After 30 days, they went back home. And uh, 9 out of 10 of the people uh, actually became diabetic again. Uh, And what it really revealed was... Uh, we have these habitual behaviors. Take you out of your environment, put you in this healthy environment. You get healthy, uh, uh, and then when you go back to the environment, you just spit back in again, and and the diabetes returns. So it's like
0: taking your cells in a petri dish and put from a healthy environment from an unhealthy, putting them into a healthy environment, they flourish. Then it would, you'd put them back into a toxic environment, and they would go down again.
1: Not only like a petri dish Richard, this is kind of funny if you think about it. Um, I, I put cells in a petri dish and grow them outside of the human body. Uh, and and what's interesting is when we talk about the human body, when people see themselves in the mirror, there's a a misperception. They look and say, "Oh, I'm a single living entity, me, like Bruce, in the mirror." And I go, "Well, this is this is a a misperception of of, of great proportion for this reason. A human is made out of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity." The human, by strict definition, is a community of 50 trillion cells. So what's really the joke part is a human is a skin-covered Petri dish with 50 trillion cells inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the whole important understanding is it doesn't make a difference to the cells if they're in the plastic dish or the skin dish. Either one doesn't make a difference. They will read the environmental information and adjust their biology. In the... In the culture dish, when I change the culture medium, which is uh, cells are like fish, they, they have to live in an aquarium, a fluid aquarium, that's why when you cut yourself open, fluid run out, uh, so cells are like uh, uh, fish in this aquarium, and when I take cells out of the body, I have to uh, try to make the environment in which they live, that aquarium fluid, uh, as closely matched to the chemistry uh, that is found inside the body, that's how we make culture mediums to match what's going on inside. So, uh, in the plastic dish, we call it culture medium. In the human skin-covered Petri dish, that culture medium is called blood. And and, and here's the difference, uh, or here's the important fact: what my research showed. while well, I was teaching students that genes control life. Uh, I would put one single stem cell, embryonic cell, in a Petri dish by itself. It divides every 10 or 12 hours, one cell at first, then two, four, eight, sixteen, 16, doubling. After a week, I have 50,000 cells in the Petri dish, but the point is very, very critical. All the cells are genetically identical because they came from the same parent. Now, here's the experiment, and uh, and it's simple and profound. I, I take, I have 50,000 cells in this Petri dish, I split the cells and put them in three different petri dishes and i changed the culture environment the culture medium the equivalent of the blood change the chemistry a little bit in each of the dishes so i have three dishes genetically identical cells in each dish but a slightly different environment in one dish my cells form muscle in another dish my stem cells form bone and in the third dish the stem cells become fat cells so then there's this like most pivotal and profound question is what controls the fate of a cell? And the answer is simple. Uh, They were all genetically identical, so the fate wasn't controlled by the genes. The fate was controlled by the environmental information in which they're living, the culture medium. Different uh, culture medium uh, get different effects. And and so then you say, well, well, that's really interesting. No, no. I say, now go back to the cells in your body. And I say the cells in your body are in the skin-covered dish, but to the cells, they don't know if it's a skin dish or a plastic dish. Uh, and But they're still responding to the environment in your body. The environment's the blood. And then I say, well, simple—you change the chemical composition of the blood, which is like changing the culture medium, and you change the fate of the cells, and that's absolutely true. And then I go, ah, but he- here's the here's the critical part: who's the chemist in your body that controls the chemistry of the blood? Because that is what's going to control the genetics. And then uh, and then the connection is voila, the brain is the chemist. The brain releases neurochemicals, neuropeptides, hormones, growth factors, and puts that into the blood so that the brain is adjusting the chemistry of the blood. And as the experiment showed, the chemistry of the blood or the culture medium uh, controls the fate of the cells. And then there's one last piece, and we put that in, it's like the aha moment. And the aha moment is, okay, so the brain is controlling the chemistry, which in turn controls the genetics, which chemistry should the brain release? And then all of a sudden it connects to the last piece, and that is whatever your mind perceives, your mind's perception is translated into chemistry, which is released into the blood. So very simple. Uh, Same, we look at one person, we say, here's a person, uh, their eyes are closed, they open their eyes, and they see someone they love in front of them. The feeling of love, the perception of love, causes these wonderful chemicals called dopamine, which is a pleasure hormone, oxytocin, a bonding hormone, vasopressin, a hormone that increases attractiveness. Uh, I say, when you see someone you love and your mind perceives love, your brain is releasing these wonderful chemicals uh, into, the, into the blood. And I say, well, what's the influence of these chemicals? And I say, simply, I, I take those chemicals released from a brain in love and put it in a plastic petri dish. The cells grow exuberantly well. And all of a sudden you realize, yes, when you are perceiving love in your life, you're releasing the chemistry of health. That's why people are so glowing when they're in love, because the culture medium is fully supporting the health and vitality of the cells. Now I go back and say, same person opens their eyes and sees something that's threatening in front of their face. They're not releasing the, the love chemistry from the brain. Now they release stress hormones and inflammatory agents that... These chemicals re- released by the brain in a state of fear, for example, I put those chemicals in a plastic petri dish myself, guess what? The cells stop growing.
0: The cells stop growing in response in to the fear.
1: Yeah, and there's simple, it's a simple reason. It's not out of logic. It's a simple reason is this: if you see something that you fear, you're going to get ready for fight or flight. Well, if you're going to get ready for fight or flight, let's say a lion is chasing you. Um, how how much of the body's energy do you want to allocate to running away from the lion? And the answer is every bit of energy in my body that I could summon up. I'm going to need it now to run. So what does the stress hormone do? It shuts down the the biology of all functions not associated with running away.
0: Like the uh, immune, uh, like uh, the immune system.
1: The immune system is shut down, yeah, because that's the internal protection. Yeah. The joke. It's very funny because in my lecture, I say, "Look, uh, you're in." Uh, you know, I give uh, the the people. And I say, "Here's your job. You're in charge of energy distribution in your body. You have a little room in the brain, and you go to work on Monday morning, and the cell phone, uh, the phone rings." And, and there's an excited voice coming from the stomach saying, hey, listen, we have a, a bacterial infection down here in the stomach, and uh, we could get a bad case of diarrhea. We need some energy uh, for the immune system to fight this. So you put down the phone, you're thinking about how much energy you should send to the, to the stomach, and just what you're doing that. the phone, and there's a more excited voice going, oh, my God, we're being chased by a lion. And now I just say, look, you're in charge of energy. How much of the energy do you, how are you going to split that? How much are you going to... Put into running away from the lion, and how much energy should you dedicate to, to the bacteria, fighting the bacteria in the gut? The answer is simple. Uh, the answer is this it's like, the heck with the bacteria in the gut, because if the lion catches you, the bacteria become the lion's problem. <laughs> it's not yours anymore, anyway. So uh, basically, you allocate 100% of your energy to run away from the lion. But if you do that, that means all functions not associated with uh, uh, survival and escape, those functions are going to be inhibited by stress hormones. This is exactly what happens, and this is why stress kills, and the simple reason is this. In the original understanding of human evolution, that stress response wasn't used every day. That, w- that was only used when the lion was coming. Well, if you got away from the lion, uh, you'd immediately go back into growth because there's protection and there's growth. So... When you're in protection, you shut off the growth because you don't use the energy. Uh, and so when you're being chased by that lion, sure, you shut down all the other functions, escape from the lion. But
0: suppose a person, then, Bruce, is being constantly chased by lions. There suppose, we are today. Suppose we, have a, we Suppose we have a population where 80% of the population... Of a country the united states is only is now splitting up what's left ten percent of the wealth of the country because twenty percent of the animals are eating the other ninety percent what happens and and all this eighty percent who are now down to splitting up ten percent of the pie are living in constant fear they're living in fear that in three months if they lose their job they're going to be out on the street they'll they'll lose their home they lose their car and we know that this is going on and I can see the connection between that kind of stress that you're talking about, that kind of fear, and greater sickness and, and obesity that could come out of it, and, and drug addiction, and and uh, and, and various, which and and, 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 and with. the depression which I started with. But what I don't understand, and I so I see it's very clear how the fear and stress changes the chemistry. Which you know, the, the mind changes the chemistry, and then it, the chemistry changes the blood, which is the culture for the cells, and we go down. But what I don't understand when I was thinking about this last night in, in preparation for our interview is, then why is it that people in prisons, for example, don't have a much higher mortality rate than the average population, which they don't, by the way. They have a lower mortality rate. Why is it that people in Auschwitz during World War II lived at all? Why didn't they all die, Bruce? Well, they were under such extreme. I mean, those people who were in those 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 concentration camps were being chased by lions every single second, right? They were being warehoused. Absolutely. The conditions were terrible. A total total fear environment, and yet some of them lived. Yeah, Why? I, I, How is I it absolutely. that those cells didn't die completely?
1: Because most of them didn't focus on the immediacy of the danger and started to look for the future as a possible hope and center. So it's basically, what are you focusing on? If I focus on the immediate carnage right in front of me, I become that. If I focus on, you know, I'll I'll make it, I'm strong, I will get there, I'm going to this destination, I am looking for this then you move, your mind moves into that vision and releases the chemistry associated with the hope part. With the
0: hope. So that's what Viktor Frankl was talking about in exactly. From Death Camp to Existentialism, how he survived by being, in the, by being present, but yet looking to the future with hope. Frankl so he, is,
1: the, is the best example of that, because he wrote exactly, how did I do it? How did I get right. out of that place? And he said that, that everybody who didn't focus on the immediate death that, looked, that was looming in front of them, when you were focusing on that you were releasing all of those those chemicals uh, from the brain that were that were shutting down your biology and getting ready for fight or flight uh, and it's very interesting because um uh, the, the beliefs uh and the experiences and the perceptions are are changing those genes on a day by day basis not not only did we talk about the dean ornish experiment here's a here's a, another insight about how the genes are responding to the environment it goes like this when identical twins are born, the moment they're born, their genetic readouts are almost identical. And then I say, but what if you go back and look at the genetic readout of uh, twins of uh, 1, 5, 10, 20 years down the road? What they found is every year of life, the genetic readout of identical twins diverges further and further apart uh, because they reflect the fact that the genes are adjusting to life experiences. So as two twins, if they separate especially and start going in their own life experiences and then you come back and read the genes, they're not going to read the same genetic readout. Uh, and this is a profoundly different story than most of uh, the listeners
0: have been This is pr- this with. is a profoundly different story, and, and it really is interesting. It, it's in total contradistinction to that uh, the study by Sir Cyril Burt, which, well, you know, was disproven on the famous gene studies with, with these uh, of, of the twins that were uh, reared uh, separately, and he claimed uh, that. As, since the the correlation, uh, if one of them had schizophrenia, then the one who lived 400 miles away with a completely different family also uh, got became schizophrenic, and and he used that as the uh, uh, the opposite of the argument that you're making.
1: But it didn't work that. But way. it didn't work. Well,
0: it turned out he fudged the data. His graduate students found out after he died, and he lost his knighthood. Yeah. Well, this, you know, that know, was that, the. But that was an extreme. I'm using it as an example of the extreme to which he was willing to go in favor of the ge- the genes programming us forever, which is just the opposite of what yeah. you're saying, which is they're modifiable.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because a true scientist should go into an experiment with, geez, I wonder what's going to happen. Let's see. Yeah Unfortunately, most scientists go in experiment saying, "I want to prove that this is the point." And if you already have the conclusion in your mind before you start the experiment, you, you profoundly change the results of the experiment. Simple, there was an article in the British Journal of Medicine uh, uh, and, and what the article showed was they looked at the results of experiment uh, based on who was funding the experiment if the experiment was funded by government money, or if the experiment was funded by money from the pharmaceutical industry, what they found is that the results were so different that it, when the pharmaceutical industry was funding the research, the results were four to five times more in their favor than when the same research <laughs> was done by... The, and it's not that they were consciously out there saying, oh, I want to, you know, change the data. They were like the, the, the men you just mentioned, they saw uh, what they were looking for and sort of uh, selected the data that fit what they wanted to show and ignored the data that didn't fit what they wanted to show. So they proved themselves to be right each time, but it was totally biased.
0: Yeah. I want to switch topic now and get on to something most of our listeners, of course, have heard of of the placebo effect, where you take a sugar pill thinking it's medicine and you get the effect of the medicine. Bruce, I'd like you to talk about the nocebo effect.
1: Yeah, uh, Richard, I'm so glad you brought that up, because almost everybody out there says, oh yeah, the placebo effect, uh, uh, the thought that this is the medicine that will heal me, I take the, the so-called medicine, I get better, uh, and then I later find out that the medicine was just a sugar pill. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not just medicine, it's even surgery uh, as well. They, they, here's a minimum number, one-third, but it could be up to two-thirds, one-third of all medically-related processes where healing comes about one third of them has nothing to do with the medical practice the drugs the surgery one third is strictly just the belief system of it and everybody goes oh yeah i understand that that's like positive thinking and and all that and i go well yeah but what you leave out is what you brought up richard and that is called what about the consequence of negative thinking and and so profoundly important because it turns out That negative thinking is equally powerful to positive thinking, but works in the opposite direction, so that a negative thought can actually produce an illness such as a cancer or can actually kill you. You can be... Truly scared to death by a diagnosis and die from the diagnosis and not from any real problem at all. And so why people have to know that is like, oh well, um, you know, I'm focusing on my positive thinking. I'm thinking, no, you better focus on the negative thinking because uh, psychologists reveal up to seventy percent of our thoughts are negative and redundant. That means seventy percent of the day you're putting chemistry, which the chemistry. Remember that that just connects us back to the cells and the biology and the brain. Uh, a negative thought releases chemistry that actually interferes with the health of the cell and a positive thought redu- you know, releases the chemistry that enhances health and if we just go to common statistics and seventy percent of us are walking around with thoughts fleeting through our head that we're not really paying attention to most of the time but most of them as i said negative things like oh this is not going to work or oh that can't happen just these little thoughts that come up not realizing that those thoughts are the ones that are are releasing chemistry that will complement what that thought is. So uh, by ignoring the nocebo effect, we ignore the fact that most of the illness on this planet isn't organic, but it's actually due to the negative programming uh, of our beliefs, which then are translated into negative chemistry into the blood, which then is translated into uh, selecting genes that don't support our health.
0: So let's get back to Lamarck and apply him to what we're talking about with the nocebo effect. If we've got our population here, and so much of what our population is programmed to think and the way that they think happens in the first six years of life you know the Pope says give me a child from age zero to six and I'll have him for the rest of his life Uh,
1: if so much of the program
0: if so much of our programming happens in the first six years of our life and so much of our population right now is in a state of fear which means their children in the first six years of their life are taking in this fear are absorbing this fear and absorbing this negative depressed way of thinking how do we get them out of it, Bruce?
1: Well, the whole idea is, A, you first have to recognize that thinking was involved in And in the world we live in, of course, as we started off in talking about, thinking has been relegated, oh, that's just the mind and that's just not the body. You know what's interesting to try to simplify it at some level, uh, biomedicine looks at the human body like a vehicle, like a car. And if it's not working right, it's sort of like you take the vehicle into the repair place, the guy lifts up the hood, looks in there, does a diagnosis, puts some parts in there, and says, okay, you're free to go now. Uh, this is sort of like the medical situation. I, I go in, they look at your, you know, the, the stats on your body's systems, and they say, oh, yeah, you need these drugs and these things to bring it back up. Uh, so they're looking at the vehicle as, a, as like a self-controlled uh, robotic vehicle controlled by genes. What they left out is when you bring epigenetics in, where your perceptions are influencing the chemistry, which then turns and affects the genes, all of a sudden it says, wait, we're not a genetically controlled automatic vehicle. There's a driver, (laughs) and the driver is our consciousness. And the point is very simple. And that is, if you're a good driver, if you just look at the, your car, if you take care of your car, it can last for years and years and years. But if you're a rough driver, you've got bad driving skills, you drive with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, your vehicle ends up in the junkyard. And the point is, well, are we blaming the vehicle? Well, that's what we do in medicine. But the truth is, you go to the junkyard and you say, how many of these cars are in here because they were absolutely built bad? Uh, and I say, well, there would be a small percentage, maybe about 5%, but I would say 95% of the vehicles in the junkyard are there because of driver error. And this is what the new biology is trying to get us around. It says you are driving this vehicle into the ground by not understanding your beliefs and attitudes as a driver are, are affecting this this vehicle. So. Well, we are now facing this issue, and as you said, and this was so critical, and it irritated me for a long time, is that the Jesuits said, yes, they definitely told us, uh, that give me that child until it's six or seven, and it will belong to the Church for the rest of its life. What did they know for 500 years? They knew, if I get the first seven years of that child's life and I program it, I don't care what the wishes and desires of that child it will be. Because their life is not running from that conscious mind of creativity, uh, which most of us believe we're, we're creating our lives with our beliefs and all that. It turns out only 5% of our life is controlled by our conscious mind. That's the one with wishes and desires. That's the one that says, well, Richard, what do you want out of your life? And, and you give me an answer, and you say, well, that comes from the conscious mind. That's you, your spirit. But that's your wishes, desires, and aspirations, I say, And 95% of our life is actually unfolding from what is called the unconscious mind, the subconscious mind, which is the programmable mind. It's the habitual mind where once you learn how to do something, you just push the button and plays it over and over again. Well, why this becomes relevant is the programming occurs in the f- uh, first seven years, actually in the last trimester of pregnancy, and through the first seven years, uh, our biological nervous system is actually on record mode, just like a hip- in hip uh, hypnosis that 's what actually where a child is in, recording everything it sees and experiences, bypassing consciousness and going straight into programs in the subconscious so while we 're talking right now, uh, I say, okay, how much of my life is is run by my conscious mind I say five percent, and the reason is. The conscious mind's always thinking. Uh, It's moving into the past, moving into the future, disconnecting from the current moment. And when the conscious mind's not paying attention to the current moment, the default is to the programs in the subconscious. Again, I go, yeah, but those programs primarily came from observing other people. So the subconscious programs in no way seem to support where we want to go. And if they're running 95% of the time, and they do so invisibly because it's subconscious, we always wonder, why isn't my life working the way I want it to? Uh, all of a sudden,
0: uh, I'm starting to get a little discouraged here. I was so I was so encouraged. <laughs> no, wait, wait, I was no, so encouraged the through the part. whole program, hearing that, that I could affect my genes, that I'm I, that I, I am not a victim, that that okay, I actually can good. change my environment. But now you're telling me that 95%... Come on. Let's hear it. Let me tell the good
1: part, Richard, because it's the basis of my new book coming out in the okay. spring. Okay. The new book is called The Honeymoon Effect the science of creating heaven on earth. And I ask people, I say, look, go back to a time you fell head over heels in love with somebody. Uh, And I say, yeah, look, this experience may have lasted a week, a month, if you're lucky, a year. I call it the honeymoon effect. I say, what was that? And I say, when you go back to that time where you really fell in love, I say, were you healthy? Almost everybody says exuberantly healthy. I go, yep, because when you're in love, the chemistry from the brain is all that good stuff. I said, and I go, did you have energy when you fell in love? Everybody laughs because they know they made love for days without stopping for food or sleep. And then I also ask this question, and here's the good one, Richard. I say, was life so beautiful when you fell in love like that uh, that you couldn't wait for the next day to have more? It was essentially heaven on earth when you were living in that love. And everybody goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, Well, this is the honeymoon effect. And I say, Guess what? It lasts for a period of time and then it disappears. So I said, But. What do you mean?
0: It lasts for a period of time and then it disappears almost as if that is for sure. Why does it have to disappear, Bruce? Well,
1: first we have to understand how, the, how did we get it? <laughs> here's, how we, here's how we fell in love it's the one time in our lives that the conscious mind doesn't leave the present moment. It's the one time where we stay present because everything you wanted was right there. Well, guess what? When you are running your, your cognitive activity, your neurological activity from the conscious mind, that means every decision, every action is based on your wishes, your desires, and your aspirations. And guess what? When two people are doing that, they're both creating heaven on earth. And
0: I want to know then what the mind is shooting into that culture called the bloodstream in the way of chemicals that gives us that feeling.
1: That's all that dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin and growth hormone. That's the stuff. But then I say, well, then how come the honeymoon ends? I say, well, how did it begin? The answer was this. The one time you didn't uh, uh, default to the programming that we got in the first seven years, which are beliefs and actions uh, downloaded from other people, when you were running it strictly by consciousness, being present, you created everything based on your wishes and desires. But once the mind gets busy uh, thinking, like, so you're in the honeymoon, that's really great, but then guess what? You still have a job. You've got to pay the rent. You have to fix the car. And at some point, your conscious mind starts wandering again. Oh, yeah, I've got to do this and that. But guess what? The moment your conscious mind wanders, you kick back default into the subconscious programs, which are behaviors from other people. So the honeymoon is what? two people creating directly from their conscious wishes and desires. But as time goes on and life starts to, uh, you know, come back into the thing, you've got to deal with stuff, your conscious mind begins to wander. You then default to the programs, and you start playing behaviors that were never part of the original honeymoon experience, because these are behaviors you got from your mother, your father, your family. And they were never part uh, of a honeymoon uh, until your mind started to wander. And guess what? once these behaviors that were never invited show up, then the relationship goes on a little bit of a compromise situation. It's Like, well, that's a crappy behavior that you just played, which may have been your father's or your mother's. Uh, and you didn't see it. Your partner did. Uh, and then they have to decide at this point, when these behaviors start showing up, which were never there before, how, much they're, how many of these are they going to accept? And how many of these behaviors are wrong? Well, that's not acceptable. Uh, because this is a period of compromise where you started out in a honeymoon, you then compromise because the parental family programming starts to, to show up, which are not supportive of you anyway. And, and then the honeymoon starts to disappear. Why is it so important, Richard, is this. What if we actually eliminated the programming from our, our upbringing, in a sense, of the first seven years where we downloaded these behaviors of other people? What if we eliminated that? And the answer is, well, that's what you did when you created the honeymoon. So it says, well, you mean if you're operating from your conscious mind, then you could maintain the honeymoon? The answer is, absolutely. That's what mindfulness or Buddhist mindfulness is all about. Stay in the conscious mind, and every decision you make is one that you want to make. You uh, have your conscious mind wander and thinking and, you know, daydreaming or wherever the hell it's going. Uh, 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 When you're doing that and the conscious mind's not paying attention, that's when you kick in and play those subconscious beliefs and that's the sabotaging element now you say oh well, there's there's two things you can do one is stay mindful which is an exercise uh, because if that means you keep, you keep your conscious mind in the present moment and every decision is really based on your wishes and desires very difficult to do in a busy world that causes us to think a lot it
0: is and Bruce I just want to tell you I just got a signal we've got three minutes left and I realize that we're gonna have to I and I hope you'll do this is come back because I, I I need you to talk about the place of intention and commitment and how we get in into the present moment as a way of dealing with all this programming and the way of getting us out of the programming. I yeah, mean, That's, Richard, the, that's I just, essential because I'm sure listeners are saying to themselves, you know, how do we accomplish this?
1: Yeah. Well, I would love to come back, and I, but I just want people. Yes. To, at least if they recognize this, go back to a time you did fall in love, and then just review. Wasn't it wonderful? Uh, you know, what's interesting? What, what this only comes. What it all comes down to. There's the movie called The Matrix. And, uh, and if you go look for it, uh, uh, you know, in a shop, it would be under science fiction. And i really like to suggest that The Matrix is more of a documentary. Uh, because it said exactly that we were programmed, and if you take the red pill, you get out of the programming. And I'm saying, when you fell in love, that was tantamount to taking the red pill, because that was the one time you didn't operate from programming. And look how wonderful your life was.
0: Yes. The opposite of fear, the opposite of stress, living in harmony. That's what you're talking about.
1: Oh, it's so wonderful. It's heaven on earth.
0: Well, Bruce, it's been wonderful. It's heaven on earth having you on this program today. Richard, I I'd love like to
1: come back. I, I'd, definitely. i expand on this.
0: Definitely. I'll contact you later on this week, and we'll get you back for part two with Dr. Bruce Lipton, The Biology of Belief. You can listen to this program on my website. You'll be able to hear it again. You can go to Google and Google Bruce Lipton, and you can see uh, and hear many of his lectures. You're going to want to read his book. And uh, thank you so much again, Bruce, and I look forward to having you back on the program.
1: Richard, I appreciate that. I also want to thank Mike back there in the control room, making sure that all this gets out to the world, and then thank those people who are listening because they're part of the new evolution, they're the cultural creatives. They're going to help us get out of this mess.
0: Thank you so much, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind Body Health and Politics, which is made possible by our staff at KZyx and our in studio engineer, my dear friend Mike Delora. Please join me again at exactly two weeks at nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time, and we're going to be talking about healthy eating and what kind of things you can do to enhance your healthy eating. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.